You're listening to the weekly message by St. Stephen's Episcopal Church. We are a church that strives to know, love, and serve God as we deepen our faith. We worship online via Zoom and at our House of Worship in Rochester, New York. To learn more, visit us at stephensrochester.org. Today, um, I wanted to uh, do something a bit unusual. We're going to go back and uh, throughout the summer be learning about the prophets. And one particular prophet today that comes to my mind is one we've been talking about in the previous series. We're beginning a, a, a new series uh, for the summer that I call Prophet Margins, uh, in which we're going to go over about five of the prophets with whom you may or may not be familiar. Um, the uh, the one we're going to talk about today is one we've spoken about over the last couple of weeks, actually, during our this study of the life in the spirit. Um, and I uh, want to share a little bit of information uh, about uh, about that, about him today um, that you may, you may not know. And but but I wanted to talk about it in light of a lot of things that have been happening in our own uh, United States uh, recently. Uh, and, and the reason I, I wanted to begin talking about Elisha today is because he has, there's a story about him that we're going to talk about that took place during something of an epidemic uh, way back in the ninth century BC. Um, and in it, I think we learned something about how to live in an epidemic. Of course, we've just gone through a pandemic. But the epidemic that concerns me now uh, is what I would characterize as an epidemic of what I'm going to call polarized deafness, our inability to actually hear each other anymore in our country. And I wanted to suggest that there's things that we can do uh, if, if we simply listen to the prophet, the story of the prophet of Elisha today, prophet Elisha. Um, one of the things I think that we're seeing in our own country is a dynamic in which we like uh, like we read in the Gospels about Jesus, where there, where it said nothing good can come out of Galilee. We say that about each other now. Nothing good could ever come from a Republican or from a Democrat or from a lib or from a conservative or a progressive. We tend to say that as we read the news and hear on, you know, through the social media, the opinions of various folks, we tune each other out. And that's what I mean when I say we have a polarized deafness, this, this uh, habit we've developed in our country of tuning each other out and, and no longer listening to one another. And, the, and of course, the uh, to sort of foreshadow what I'm going to say today, what we see in this story uh, from uh, the prophet Elisha, is uh, is a, a tuning in, a learning to tune in uh, to those to whom uh, we had uh, shown a deaf ear. One of the ways I want to get at that is just recalling some of the Supreme Court decisions that we've we've heard in the last couple of weeks. Uh, we talked a little bit last week about Roe v. Wade, and um, wanted to remind you of the Episcopal Church's teaching on that. Uh, the, the teaching is, uh, you know, rises you know, primarily from our general convention's um, resolutions. And, they, and really what we, we do in the Episcopal Church from a teaching perspective is understand and think about the Roe v. Wade and in, in, in the, in the, uh, the practice of abortion as a matter of human dignity. And we see it in terms of a, of a need to balance the human dignity of two. 
And, uh, and so we're called by the Episcopal Church to recognize this tension and to, and to try to navigate that tension in a very holy and sacred way. And so uh, what we say is that uh, we emphatically, this is from quoting now in our own general convention, we emphatically oppose abortion as a means of birth control, as a means of family planning, as a, a means of sex selection or any reason of mere convenience. But on the other hand, we say that government whether federal or state, should not legislate the human dignity of the mother. That is to say, uh, uh, there's an, a, a strong concern that the government treat women's reproductive health and, and reproductive health procedures uh, just like we do all other medical procedures. And so we declare that uh, the equitable access of, uh, uh, of all to women's health care, uh, including women's reproductive health care, is an integral part of a woman's struggle to assert her dignity and her worth as a human being. So that's a quote from our general convention that I want to share with you. My point is not to get involved in a political discussion here, but to first of all, remind us that we see it as a church, uh, as uh, in, in terms of our general convention, as a balancing act, it's something held in tension uh, in, regarding the sacredness of human dignity, that of the mother and that of the not yet born child inside her. And, and, and the point that I want to make about this is as we look at those who are on other sides of that issue from us. Well, we really don't disagree on that on that point. We don't disagree on the question of whether or not this is a matter of human dignity. What we disagree on is how to prioritize the human dignities of each as we seek the greatest good. And we can learn from each other and feel less angry and less polarized as we contemplate and, and listen carefully to the words of those who hold the opposing views to ours. Now, there's another decision that came out, what I call the Bruin decision, and that's uh, one that involves us here in New York. It had to do with gun control and gun rights. Um, and uh, and on one side of the issue of those who who say that possession of guns is one of those rights that's enumerated in the Constitution and that eliminating that right can't be part of any solution which addresses crime and violence in our country. And, and on the other hand, uh, you have those who who say that doesn't make any sense to me. If you eliminate access to guns then you would eliminate much of the causes of the violence that we experience in our in our cities and our countryside. What you may not know, if you were listening real carefully to that brief, is that there are actually other stakeholders that if we were going out and listening carefully, if we took the risk of listening to those who um, are on the other side of these issues, you might you might you might hear things like this. There was an amicus brief uh, on that uh, from uh, public defenders from the from New York City uh, who who urged the Supreme Court to do what it ended up doing, because in their experience, they found that the New York law that uh, that requires us to obtain specific permission to carry a gun outside of our homes had been weaponized uh, and was a, it was a core means of racialized policing. And so they saw it as a matter of equity in terms of rolling back uh, our racialized policing efforts in, in addressing those issues and so urged the Supreme Court to overturn our law. You might not have known. I thought it was very interesting and I only heard it, learned of it 
by listening more closely. One other one I want to mention is what I call the Kennedy decision, which happened out in Seattle. Uh, and that's the one where there was this uh, coach who uh, was doing uh, what I used to see a lot. The Fellowship of Christian Athletes would hold prayers after sporting events, usually at midcourt or midfield. And uh, anybody who wanted to could gather around. Um, and there were some who saw that as proselytizing and as an illegal establishment of, of uh, evangelical form of, of Christianity in the public sphere. And the Supreme Court, as you may know, um, uh, ruled that that was a permissible uh, practice of one's faith. And as I would remind you that, you know, our separation of church and doc- uh, church and state doctrine holds that, uh, you know, that, that, that we desire the people to protect the people's religious expression from the state, not protect us from our neighbor's religious expression. And so whichever side you have on that, my point is we are long past actually listening to each other. And so what I'm citing these examples, not to get into the politics of it, but simply to just help us remember how much we've stopped even hearing and seeing those on the other side of us as rational, humane persons who are our fellow citizens. We tend to demonize them and see um, see others as our enemies who, uh, like the Galileans, you know, nothing good can ever, can ever come out of their mouths. So why listen? And I want to suggest that's a real problem. Um, now, getting uh, following up on this issue of the, the use of our faith, the expressions of our faith in the public sphere, that actually leads us into our story uh, from our prophet today, the story of Elisha. Um, Some believe, you see, that the solution to our polarized deafness is to mute the word. And when I say mute the word, I'm saying the word that might be spoken our um, Jewish brethren, by our um, evangelical brethren, by any of those who practice and understand God and what God says to us in different ways than us. And, and, uh, and this comes from the enlightenment, this enlightenment view of religion, which you may actually find as part of your own way of thinking, because uh, we grew up in, you know, in an enlightenment world. And, and, and the idea is this, that the persistence of historically, culturally concrete religion is an unhelpful obstacle to our unity, to the unity of humankind, and comes from uh, Immanuel Kant, uh, the idea that our unity can best be achieved by setting aside religion and just holding on to what I'm going to call secular humanism, this this idea that we have transcendent universal standards of reason and morality, and that's all we need, and we therefore shouldn't bring faith into the public space. And so if us Jews, Muslims, and Christians, and others would simply jettison our tribalism, our tribal moorings of our faith, well, then the world would all have uh, congenial, uh, peaceful coexistence and cooperation. So therefore, faith should stay out of politics. Faith has no place in the public sphere. We should all check our faith at the door in the interest of meeting each other on neutral ground. And I say neutral ground in quotes. Um, all of that is to suggest to you something that is very common thinking to you today. In order for me to say to you, our story of Elisha, I believe, says exactly the opposite to that. So let's drill into to the prophet Elisha. Uh, you may, may, may or may not be familiar with him. We've been talking about him for the last couple of weeks. Uh, uh, he, he 
is a prophet who followed, you, re, you may recall in our last couple of stories, we talked about the chariot of fire and, and uh, all of that. He was the successor anointed by uh, the prophet Elijah. He lived from the time about uh, oh, 892 to 832. He had a ministry for about 40 years as an adult uh, in, in, in about 300 years before the Jews went into exile in, in Babylon. And, and, and so we have about 300 years worth of of his stories, the ones we read today, being passed by oral tradition until they were written down while uh, we were in exile in Babylon. Elisha uh, means um, um, my God, uh, and my God saves, as you, as you can see there from the Hebrew. Um, he was a very prominent prophet. He um, was was. Uh, very much involved in the decisions of state and, and critically, critically, uh, in, in you know participated in discussions about what the kings of Israel did, uh, and and he was an advisor uh, to not just uh, the kings uh, who understood themselves to be Hebrew, but uh, to the kings in all the neighboring countries who would often send delegations uh, uh, to him. Um, now, you may not be familiar with the geography. I want to show you a little map here. You can, If you can look at the pink and the green there, and then you can see where the word Aram up there, you get situated in our story today. Aram is the area that we call Syria. Uh, below that, you see that, that little pinkish red area. Uh, that's the place that uh, we call the, in history the Northern Kingdom. The Northern Kingdom and then Judah was the Southern Kingdom. You see, after the Hebrews immigrated from Egypt, they settled, the 12 tribes settled, and the most fertile lands were left to, to 10 tribes who, who ultimately were consolidated in what was known as the Northern Kingdom. And then the tribes of Judah and Benjamin got uh, the less fertile land, and they settled and they became the, the Southern Kingdom, which ultimately became known as Judah, uh, even though Benjamin was a, a very small partner in, in that and eventually got absorbed into that. Uh, and so Elisha did his ministry in that area, in, in the northern kingdom. And uh, in our story today, we're encountering a general named Naaman. Naaman was the general who was pretty important to us. You may recall the story uh, that I called the Super Bowl, where Elijah, uh, you know, challenged the prophets of Baal, who were Jezebel's um, prophets in that in that wonderful thing that led to the sounds of silence uh, story that we 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 went through a couple of weeks ago. Well, Naaman was the general. Well, as a result of that, God promised that Ahab and Jezebel uh, would be removed from from their leadership role. They would be killed, and Naaman was the Syrian general who was responsible for their death. That's a pretty important part. So you have. Ahab and Jezebel's son, Jehoram, now the king of the northern kingdom, the king, the, the king of Israel. And he had he now uh, had been conquered in battle. Ahab, his father, had been conquered in battle. Naaman is the one who was responsible for that victory. So the background of, of this is a power into the north called Syria, Aram. And the general of that is the one who comes down and deals uh, uh, to, to, to in a land that he had just conquered. Uh, and, and of course, as you know, the story uh, tells us that he, he encounters uh, the, the fact of leprosy, that he has leprosy and in, 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 in all that that portends that the promise of isolation and ultimately death uh, that, that that implies. And then we have the story of this Israeli 
slave girl uh, who tells him about this prophet down south in the land that he had just conquered uh, who had healing powers. And then we have this beautiful little story uh, about these bum. Effectively, and and uh, and Jehoram tears his clothes, and he sees uh, getting involved in this as a trap set by the Syrian king. This might be another excuse for him to come and remove Jehoram from the throne, and so he's very concerned. And, and in that, Elisha says, "Don't worry, relax. Let me let me take care of this." Um, and so Naaman approaches Elisha, and he's insulted when Elisha merely sends him instructions on how to be healed. He basically says, hey, "Take two aspirin and call me in the morning." Um, uh, and he gets a little offended with the solution because he says, go bathe in the Syrian river. Uh, I mean, in the, uh, in the, in the, the Jordan river. And of course he says, hey, what's wrong with the rivers? And why couldn't I have just done this? He could have just written me in a note. I could have done this back home where, where the Syrian rivers are superior. Um, and, uh, so, so that's the basic sketch of the story. What I want to do is drill down and attend a little bit closer to what actually happens in this, in this story about the prophet Elisha. First, we see a little slave girl. Actually, what it says is a little girl, a little girl who had been captured, captured during the, re, the previous war um, that Naaman had won on behalf of Aram. And she's the one who overhears and, and sees the condition of her master and then delivers the good news to him. She's the one who tells them about this possibility of healing through this great prophet that she knew of in her homeland. So once again, we see this wonderful instance in the Bible of someone who, who the world chooses not to see, a, a slave girl, a little slave girl, a non-person uh, in the eyes of the world being the one that God uses to be the herald of God's presence. So we see another instance of that. And, and what courage it must have taken to her, uh, taken up, um, by her uh, to speak up. Reminds me of what happened in our in our recent six January committee hearings, where where someone who was the least among all these elite it chose to speak up. She chose to speak up. She had the courage to speak up uh, in an alien land as a slave and as a cultural and religious outsider. And she spoke when she had that opportunity out of her faith and she spoke out of her faith about something that many would have thought impossible, the, the possibility of God's healing action. And in particular, that the possibility of God's healing action through the prophetic word. And so she overcame all of those obstacles in order to restore, in order to share that possibility. So a hero in our story, this little girl. And then there's this one that in the in the Hebrew, uh, Naaman is called the big man. That's the the he, he, that's uh, he's a great man. He's the big man. Um, and what's interesting, I think, about him is that he takes the risk of doing the thing that you and I have stopped doing, that our countrymen, our, our men and women have, have stopped doing, listening to each other. He took the risk of listening to the word twice. First, he listened to the little slave girl. And then he actually listened to Elisha. Now, initially, when Elisha spoke, he was very arrogant. He was wounded because uh, he got this very low key reception from Elisha. You know, Elisha didn't even go out to meet him. Elisha just sent a message to him. You know, and he had these preconceptions about how salvation was supposed to happen when you're a big man like that. You know, he was so so he was insulted that Elisha didn't make some big production out of calling on Yahweh on his behalf. Um he expected his salvation to be a big deal because he was a big deal. 
And what's interesting is the scripture tells us when he took the advice of a little girl and he was saved, his diseased flesh became like the flesh of a little boy. So he was willing to seek help from those he knew only as his enemies. And he risked seeing those enemies in all their particularity as actually being capable of speaking into his life. And so one of the things that our, our text today that uh, Bonnie read to us uh, says in, in the verse that she didn't read, but the verse immediately following, verse 15 and 16, he returned to Elisha with all his entourage, and he came and stood before Elisha, and he says, now I know for certain that there's no God anywhere on earth except in Israel. And uh, so he, he, what we see is a conversion story. He recognizes uh, Yahweh. And, and because he took the risk of listening, he was saved. He experienced salvation, and his salvation then led him to faith. That was the sequence of things. The, the, the third character in the story that I think is significant, of course, is well, you might say the, the prophet Elisha, but I would say it's the one he points to whom he points, the creator. Um, and what we see here is that God works through us in our particularity for the good of the world, whatever our particularity is, whatever place you are in, God has put you there and speaks through you to the world for the good of the world. This is the understanding. So God acts through this Israelite slave girl. He acts through this Israelite prophet Elisha. He acts through the river Jordan in their particularity and in the places that they are, God speaks, not because they are in some way intrinsically unique, that there's something special about them, not because there's something special about you or about me, not because there's something special about us being Christian or Jewish, but because God meets humans in an enfleshed way through our senses, through our embodied presence. And that means God acts through those like you and me whom he commissions and through ordinary physical things like bread and wine, the ones, the things that we share. And he does that in order to bring us back into his healing presence and to experience his salvation. So God acts not through some sort of vacuous generalities like reason and wisdom, but through real people whom we have to listen to or else we might not even hear God speaking to us. And so that brings me to the good news this morning. The first is I would urge us to hear in this story the, the, the reality that God does have and seeks to cure our own cultural deafness to each other. And the way that we do that, the way God does that, is by teaching us in stories like this to expect God to meet us in the least likely places, in particularly places like Galilee and places like kingdoms that we look down upon. And, 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 we, and the good news is also is that God expects us, and we should expect uh, ourselves to hear God's words to us from our enemies, from those that we see as completely incapable of speaking to us, those are the ones through whom God is most likely to speak at times when, when we have this kind of cultural deafness. And then 
The other thing I'd say is that God transcends our own um, boundaries, the, the artificial boundaries that we create, such as some things like the public sphere. You know, that's a, something that we make up. It's, a, it's, it's us creating a compartment uh, in, in which God is not operative and another compartment in which God is operative and, and says that we check God's presence at the door here in order for us to be human. And God just laughs at that. He transcends that in any time and any space, God is capable of speaking to us. And that's what we see in this story today. And so therefore we should expect God to act upon us. God, we should expect God to redeem us. We should expect God to call us to our reconciliation, the reconciliation that we seek, the reconciliation that we need in our lives through our own particular ways, our own particular ways of being faithful, our own particular vocation of speaking God's word into the people surrounding us because of who we are. Our differences matter because God uses our differences to speak into the lives of those who need to hear God's salvific word. And I believe that's the good news on this day. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon, and we hope you're able to join us next week.